everyone. Welcome to Perspectives, the School of History and Culture's Inclusivity podcast. And we're back for a second year now, which is very exciting. Perspectives is a community endeavor in which we want to showcase the diversity of thinking and approaches to scholarship in our school. And we also want to look at this in the context of the wider university, its community and institution. And actually today we have guests who are former students of the school, and we're really excited to have them here uh, to discuss the topic of queerness and classics, uh, and also to demonstrate that our community extends beyond our current membership, and uh, our, our two guests are, are still members of our community. Um, I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Dan Reynolds. Hello. Uh, and our two guests, um, our, our former students and, and, and graduates, are Izzy Heiss. Hi. And Charlie Charleston-Stokes. Yeah. Um, and would you two like to introduce yourself a bit, little bit about your time at Birmingham and what you're currently doing? Yeah, absolutely. So my name's Izzy. I am a class of 2020. Uh, I graduated for classics and English, and I am currently doing a master's in museum studies. Uh, I betrayed the classics field a little bit, and I am sorry. <laughs> I'm um, uh, doing a master's in museum studies at Manchester. And, so you keep, uh, you're keeping it in the family. Yeah. <laughs> uh, not straying too far. I'm definitely finding ways to push my classical perspective into my current work. Please don't worry about that. And uh, I very much enjoyed my time at Birmingham. And my favourite module, which is very relevant to today, was uh, the module on Sappho. <laughs> that was with uh, Gideon. Yes, it was. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so I'm Charlie. I also graduated my BA in 2020 with Izzy, and I've just finished my master's in 2021 in antiquity, so still staying in the same area, and I stayed at UOB. I focused more on monstrosity in my final year, but it was still very tied into queerness, because everything I've studied has been. And also the Sappho module was definitely my favourite through the years. It was very student-led, and I enjoyed it a lot. Currently, I'm trying to keep classics in my life, but, you know, trying to find jobs in heritage and museums and classics is quite a job in itself. Thank you. I'm glad that um, Sappho has already been mentioned and that we'll be coming, coming back to her. As has already been hinted at, um, what we want to think about in today's episode is the discipline of classics, the subject of classics, and the spaces it potentially creates for, for queer people. But before we get into, I suppose, the details, it might be helpful if we discuss a little bit for those listening what classics is. We are all from the Department of Classics, Ancient History and Archaeology in one form or another, though so we might feel very comfortable with what classics means, but it's a term that is often used um, and has implications, um, even in sort of contemporary politics about how it's used and who, who uses it. And not everyone may be familiar with what it, what it means. I suppose even the name classics might imply a certain sense of eliteness or, or an idea of the past and history. I suppose on a technical level, classics, at least within the University of Birmingham and the School of History and Cultures is a study of traditionally the literature and language of the ancient Mediterraneans, the cultures of Greece and Rome, but we also encompass uh, a much wider breadth of cultures and societies. Uh, Dan, for example, would you maybe like to outline some of the stuff that you work on within what we call classics as a whole? Sure. So, I mean, I'm a Byzantinist, so 
on a very traditional sort of 19th century level, you know, Byzantine society is in fact the antithesis of ancient Greece and Rome. It's it was traditionally seen as a very debased kind of subsequent society. But actually, what I do within this is you know, I talk to classicists a lot because you're dealing with a society that was responsible for a lot of the preservation and transmission of the, those texts and legacies. My particular interest is uh, actually in Palestine and Arabia. So I do lots on identity, what that means when you live on the fringes of an imperial structure. And also I look at the Christianization of the Roman world as well. So in terms of how those classical motifs and legacies find a sort of a new life in later literature as well as part of Christian models of, of identity and expression. I think that's really helpful because exactly as, as Dan mentioned that there is a traditional 19th century definition of classics that is confined to the civilizations of Greece and Rome and particularly the study of the literature and language but that what we study nowadays is has far more breadth far more inclusivity and challenging what the discipline has previously but unfortunately sometimes still continues to to be presented as there have been debates over recent years about the defense of western civilization and the preserve of teaching latin and greek for example within the discipline uh, and those who want to challenge that um, perhaps elitist exclusive viewpoint of the discipline um, because it is more than just the study of latin and greek uh, it is the study of multiple cultures people civilizations languages and i think today's topic about thinking about that subject and discipline in relation to queerness will hopefully really help to illustrate the spaces that the study of ancient societies can open up, but also what those ancient societies themselves might have thought about concepts of identity and relationships that is perhaps far more exclusive and open than traditional studies of classics has allowed us to understand. Having said a little bit about classics, maybe we should also just say a little bit about queerness. Uh, and what that actually means. And I open that up to the others as I think I will be open with my identity. I, I am not queer, I am cis heterosexual woman. So it would be really helpful to actually have a definition of what queerness means. Sure, so um, I'm happy to take this one as someone who is not straight. <laughs> queerness can uh, generally be referred to as any sexuality that isn't heterosexual and more specifically, being attracted to people of your own sex, your own gender. Um, and a lot of people generally view queerness as just simply same-sex attraction. But queerness is so much more than that. It is a community. It can be um, attracted to all different multiple gender labels. It can be um, attracted to same-sex and different sex or same gender and different genders it's far more complicated and nuanced than we have been led to believe in the past. And as I said before, queerness is very much a community as well as a sexuality and a label. Thank you, Izzy, that's really helpful. Um, and I think we might at some point in this discussion get on to issues of gender non-conformity and non-binary and so the, the diversity and breadth of what can be included in, um, in these discussions. So I think a good place to start in more detail is why, why queer people might be drawn to classics as a discipline and subject. I mean, 
this is a question that I'm absolutely fascinated by. Anyone who spent a fair bit of time on Classics Twitter or Classics Tumblr a couple of years before that will have seen that uh, classical reception on the internet is generally a very queer space and a lot of the general ideas of classics have been received now as being something more queer as becoming more of a home to queer people and I personally think the reason for that is first of all it shows us that queerness has been a thing long before we have recognized it in modern society there have always been people like us uh, there always will be people like us and queerness was received so differently within the ancient world I'm sure that's something we'll talk about later to be queer wasn't necessarily something of shame it was in fact part of society in a lot of ways and I think it's very relieving for queer people to see a version of themselves that doesn't have to be shamed and a version before uh, our identity became something to be ashamed of and I also think a lot of uh, the representation of queerness in myth and in classical literature is quite ambiguous and you can very much interpret your own storyline or in own identity of, of how people uh, identify what queerness means to people in the classical world and I think that's also very comforting for the queer community that we can gain our own story out of these things we can gain our own meaning out of the queer relationships in the classical world. We could interpret them to be more like ourselves. We can see ourselves in these people uh, without seeing the version of us that is chastised and shamed for being the way that we are and are able to take whatever we want out of that. And I think that's why we queer people are drawn to classics because it contains a version of ourselves that can't really be reflected within the modern society if that makes sense. Absolutely I think that's a really really useful and really valuable way of thinking about it and I think it it speaks to the breadth of the discipline of classics and I say that in inverted commas that it is it, it doesn't conform to our you know current contemporary views that it has its own ways of thinking about um, identity, sexuality, gender relationships that provide and open up far more spaces than has traditionally been allowed for. And I wonder if we might think about one of the, um, I suppose, examples that both Izzy and Charlie have already spoken about um, in terms of, I suppose, a sort of case study into queerness, uh, which, is, which is Sappho. Um, and perhaps Charlie, would you like to introduce our audience to who Sappho is and, and why she matters in this discussion? has a ridiculously convoluted history that there's really not a lot of way of tracking, unfortunately. But she's generally known as lesbian in contemporary culture, whether that was true of her in real life, it's hard to say, but her living memory, I suppose, is as this kind of progenitor of female sexuality and being attracted to other women that people feel very connected to and it's she's become almost like a symbol for lesbian love which is where we get the word lesbian from her Sappho and Lesbos. Reading the Greek and reading the actual poetry of course can be a bit anything can be read into any kind of issue you'll always face but a lot of 
though, as this original is it's beautiful poetry. I think that's one of the the most powerful and uh, and often I think the most attractive element of classics actually, and particularly not 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 just Sappho, but many of these works is the ways that they open themselves up to sort of constant reinterpretation and and rereading. And I mean, we were talking about this just before we we went on air about how how ways in which these works are interpreted often sort of that they reflect the broader currents and conversations and attitudes of the time and we were saying I was with Sappho I wonder whether or not again we will see more sort of more popular engagement with Sappho as well because it's still very much some from my perspective and I'm talking as a Byzantinist now but it's still it's not a character who is known to the public but hasn't quite permeated the public consciousness in a a big way, unless when it's just sort of offhandish, but that might be just me not knowing it. But I mean, have you, in, in terms of your own experiences, have you found that Sappho has been a very kind of powerful literary figure Absolutely. in more popular discourse? Absolutely, yes. Um, so uh, one of my favourite projects that I did whilst doing my undergrad at Birmingham was uh, looking at the reception of Sappho throughout history and it comes all the way down to the Victorian era and the, um, the obvious, as we talked about before, the kind of internet reception of Sappho as the prototype lesbian and of this, as Charlie was saying before, figure of female sapphic sexuality, which again, named after Sappho. The, um, the project that I enjoyed most um, was looking at uh, the reception of Sappho in second wave lesbian feminism which might sound quite niche, but in uh, the 70s and 80s, there are a lot of different translations of Sappho that allowed for her to be seen as a more modern, or what they would have considered modern feminist ideas, and a lot of it being seen and translated as being a lot more like them, as loving men maybe, and then deciding that perhaps that isn't the right path for them, and then moving on to sexual relations with women or romantic relationships with women and I think that's a real part of what Sappho means especially to the queer community and to queer women this idea that you can because she's so ambiguous and because she only exists in fragments we can fill in the gaps with our own lives and our own stories and make her part of us and I think that is why Sappho has been seen as so attractive to the uh lesbian community throughout history because all these places that we have gaps in Sappho all these things we don't know we can fill them up with our own stories so yeah I think Sappho is very much a figure of really of great power not only in literature but in the queer community and answers to a question then I think there's a isn't there a reddit sub which is Sappho and her friends um, so it's definitely out there in, you know, the contemporary internet world as, as a sort of figurehead. And I suppose from a historical perspective, she was evidently important and relevant as a great love uh, poet, even the Romans. Catullus's poem 51 is adapting one of her poems. And although he's a male author writing about female he's still using exactly the same sort of language and ideas and concepts, which I suppose is an interesting comment on, on relationships and love and sexuality and interaction. It often makes me wonder as well, as a Byzantinist, 
in terms of the later reception of that, then in terms of like bridging the gap between sort of what classical Greek and Rome to coin a horrendous phrase, but we all know what I mean, hopefully, and the 18th, 19th century, and particularly in a period across the sort of medieval period, which is often sort of wrongly seen as a period of much more limited and sort of closed sexual expression and gender expression, although it's not necessarily true, because evidently Sappho and, and writers like her found continued relevance, but I don't yet think we've done many studies in terms of what that means. But it would be interesting to know, actually, I think, you know, ev because as you said, evidently it was, whatever its themes, even as literature, it found constant relevance to later mm -hmm. generations and could be reworked in a variety of ways. So Yeah, I think that's the, the, the beauty of a lot of classical literature is how it is open to reception and reading and then rereading and reading through different lenses and then rewriting. What Dowers is saying reminded me of something that Charlie mentioned again in our sort of <laughs> our pre-discussion before we started the podcast, which was, and I think it was also in relation to Sappho, but maybe a few other um, references about a code being used by people in relation to figures like Sappho or other sort of ancient authors, writers or figures. And I wondered maybe if you could say a little bit more about that, Charlie. Yeah, so that was always such an interesting part of classical reception. Uh, this hidden kind of way of referring to queer identities or queer expression by using classical literature and specific people or verses. So in times when you couldn't openly be like, oh yes, I'm a gay man looking to speak to other gay men, you might say, oh, well, I'm a particular fan of Thucydides and this specific translation of it, and people would know. Or a woman might wear violets to reference the passage in Sappho of the bride who wears violets in her lap, which became this massive representation of sapphic love. And it's just a very interesting way that people have used classics to kind of code themselves as queer. It's almost queer baiting for yourself, which is such an interesting way of doing I, com I completely agree with you, Karen, just to build on what you were saying there. I think there's the idea of the historical coding of classics as being a representation of queerness. But I don't think that's gone away. Although, obviously, hopefully most of us live in a world where we can openly be who we are, at least to some extent. It's still very common for these ideas of classics to be used as emblems of queer identity and Sappho as we discussed, is still very much a symbol of sapphic sexuality. And I find it so fascinating how these, these, this coding, although we don't need it anymore, it hasn't gone away. And it's still such an important part of not only queer identity, but queer history. Absolutely. It's a really easy, sneaky way of referring to identity like there's a passage in a wonder woman comic book which is going to sound in, shouldn't be in this discussion but there are two characters where talking to each other one of them says oh i'm a fan of sappho and the other woman realizes that this has been said in a flirtatious way and goes oh yeah i'm a fan of sappho too and these characters go on to make a connection later so it's really interesting i think that came out in about 2018 or something that's brilliant. That's totally relevant to the discussion. That's just showing how, how much that those sort of concepts and ideas have permeated through. I, I really like the idea as well that it's about the intersectionality of that as well, because 
you know, as you said, whilst it's a, it's a sort of a, a, an important component of queer identity, it also actually is, is a bond that allows you to sort of identify common interests among yourselves as well. You know, you mm. you both have an interest in the classical world. And I think, you know, as somebody who, who is gay, that that's important as well as sort of recognising that with such a diverse community, you don't always automatically have things in common with everyone, which is a really bad stereotype of, well, you're you both fancy men or fancy women or, or you know, and you must get on. Whereas actually, I really like the idea of Sappho as well as saying, you know, actually, I also like classical literature. Mm. So, and you think, oh, yes, okay, you, you know, and I really like the idea there's a, a sort of a double end, to, have a double prong to that, so. That's such a brilliant point, Dan. There's a, a big stereotype in the queer community that I'm sure everybody here will have heard of, which is, oh, you're a lesbian. Uh, my friend's next door neighbor's cousin's sister is also a lesbian. Yeah. <laughs> it is brilliant to uh, be able to unite ourselves through something that isn't just you know, who we're attracted to, because all mm. that's important. That isn't what makes a person. And these interests and these common grounds are part of wider queer community is a community. We're not a foundation just based on who we love, we're a foundation based on who we are and how we feel and what we're interested in. And you're absolutely right, Dan, the idea of bringing classics into that is such a profound way of exhibiting that. That's great. <laughs> you really nicely outlined, uh, Izzy, the, the importance of this being a community, as you say, not just a way of labelling someone's gender or sexuality, but perhaps thinking about all different types of relationships that are associated with queerness. And one of the things I think you said you'd also like to sort of talk about is the Patroclus Achilles model and um, what that might allow us to sort of think about and understand. So this is a lot of people's gateway to queer classics. I'm particularly talking about the Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller which uh, a lot of my friends that I have converted into enjoying classics have been through uh, reading <laughs> uh, The Song of Achilles by Madeline Miller. And Patroclus and Achilles' relationship is very much the, the foundation or the gateway of a lot of people considered to be queer classics. And I referred to this as a model before, um, which is what Hannah was referring to, because we see relationships like Patroclus and Achilles echoed repeatedly throughout ancient myth and history. Virgil writes of two very similar men, uh, Nisus and Euryalus. Alexander the Great, of course, had his companion, best friend, I don't know, Phaestion. <laughs> and this is a lot of people's gateway into seeing classics as something that's queer. And these relationships are absolutely fascinating. And in terms of Patroclus and Achilles being the main one that people think of, for a lot of history and for a lot of the scholarship that made me want to throw my laptop across the room during my undergrad, it was just described as a best friends. And uh, one particularly frustrating piece of scholarship I read said, uh, there is no trace of a queerness at all within the Iliad um, and just moved on, no, no discussion. I find it, I used to find it so aggravating. I still, I still find it really, really infuriating uh, when people deny it. But at the same time, I also think it's really wonderful as long as people acknowledge that we don't know and we can't, our, their relationship 
wasn't really defined and designed for the walls of our society and what we would imagine we can't we can't 100% say it's a queer relationship their boyfriends they're in love because that's as incorrect as saying they're best friends there's absolutely no queerness there and this idea that we can take whatever we want about of that relationship we can see it as a really beautiful display of friendship or we can see it as a really beautiful display of romance and whatever you want to take out of it which has become the real theme of what I'm saying within this podcast of whatever you want to take about that relationship is completely valid and I think these are why people are so drawn to Patroclus and Achilles because they are whatever you want them to be and you you have that urge to feel that you understand them better than the society that they live in could have done and I find that fascinating we were previously again before this recording but talking about um the film Troy and the representation of them there and they made a very (laughs) choice to make Patroclus much younger and to make that dynamic of the relationship different than it is for example in the actual Iliad where Patroclus is described as sort of being the older sort of wiser of the two but they they made a choice there I think Daniel was saying that this was a, a choice that perhaps reflected the time in which the film was made and attitudes there and particularly about how we interpret the classical past in relationship to the concerns of the present. Yeah and it would be interesting if they were to remake the film now would they as as we were talking about I think now that queer identities LGBTQIA identities but also broader issues not you know about feminism about Mm. ethnicity but you know the last I think the last four or five years has really seen an attempt by filmmakers and documentary makers to address some of these experiences. And I I often wonder whether or not we're on the cusp of another sort of big critical popular reinterpretation of some of these classical stories, because it's never stopped people doing it with Shakespeare. And I wonder whether or not we will see, you know, a new, a new Iliad, for example, or something like, you know, you were just making me think when you were talking about sort of ideas of masculinity that beginning of Iliad book 16, Patroclus comes to Achilles in tears um, and their relationship is, I mean, it's, there's a simile between, you know, you coming to me like a sort of child after its mother's skirt tails and everything, but then he very tenderly sort of dresses Patroclus in his own armour, which is in a sense a very different display of masculinity than, than perhaps, you know, a somewhat stereotyped generic idea of masculinity in the mid to late 20th, early 21st century is, I think is again, really interesting in terms of what the possibilities, as Izzy was saying, the sort of openness Mm. of what studying these works of literature in different societies can offer us. It's interesting that how masculinity changes in that way and how epic masculinity in particular almost gets echoed when people are specifically trying to imitate epic. So for example, in Lord of the Rings, the men cry and they kiss each other. Uh, Aragorn kisses Boromir on the head when he dies and they call each other brothers. And again, there's no queer, well, there could be queer subtext. That's a whole other rabbit hole. But (laughs) it's just interesting that masculinity is expressed so differently in epic poetry than the way we've almost been conditioned to see it with movies like Troy. Absolutely. That was all. No, yeah, that's that's a great point. And as you say, it's, it's not necessarily about queer identity, but just that these ideas are social constructs throughout time and history, and they don't look the same at different points in time. You, know, you look at sort of classical 
Greek um, fifth century sculpture of what masculinity looks like. It looks quite different from the archaic Koroi, for example, even in terms of, you know, what is the ideal physique for a man? Um, these things aren't static. Yeah, I did my uh, dissertation on uh, the presentation of love within Homer's Iliad. And this was just something I really wanted to build on this idea of what Charlie was saying. Love within the Iliad is presented as being so much more complex than I've ever seen love presented in popular culture before. Um, it's presented as being so beautiful and without any form of stereotype and without any form of what we would consider um, the boundaries of specific forms of love. If you um, look at relationships of love presented in the Iliad and gave them to somebody who had never read the Iliad before and showed them Achilles and Patroclus and showed them uh, a passage of love between Hector and Andromache, the form of love there is so deep, but it's not presented in the stereotypical way that we would see romantic love being presented. It's far more tender and without boundaries in that book. For example, in book six, when you see Hector talk to his own mother, there are examples of that idea of love that we would very much see in the way that we communicate with our own elderly parents or our own elderly grandparents. If, for example, she, uh, he, Hector comes back from the battlefield and his mother, uh, Hecabe, tries to uh, get him to sit down and make him have a drink which is uh, something that my mom always does when I come home. And he says to her, no, mom, you sit down, don't you worry. Uh, which again is, is a way that we want to treat our elderly relatives now. We want to look after them. And this idea that love is simultaneously so nuanced and so familiar within classical literature is one that I feel is really beautiful, actually. In what remains, I, I just wanted to come on to something, Izzy, that you you also mentioned you wanted to discuss, and I think it's would also be nice to, to give it some space here, which is non-binary or gender non-conformity and what mm. spaces there might be within classics for that as well. Sure, absolutely. So obviously I just want to preface this by saying uh, the idea of gender non-conformity isn't specifically one that fits into uh, the queer community. It's its own community in itself, but it's very much interlinked with the queer community. And I personally feel you cannot be a part of the queer community unless you support your uh, transgender or gender non-conforming counterparts. And throughout the pandemic, I, I attended a couple of virtual lectures on this, which is something I'm really interested in. This idea of Dionysus and presentation both within classical literature, classical uh, art, as somebody who is gender non-conforming, who takes on ideas of both femininity and masculinity, uh, depending on the source, either both in extremes or neither in extremes, and generally creates quite a nuanced picture of what we consider gender to be and embodies a lot of different gender stereotypes both at the time and now and a lot of people I've seen find quite a home in Dionysus identity and see that people like them like their own non-conformity in terms of how they uh, identify or present isn't something that's new and it's something has, that has always been here and 
it's something that I really think we need to be talking a lot more about in classics mm. uh, this idea of um, gender presentations and how we haven't always conformed to them contrary to popular belief and despite what people twist classics into being a lot of the time which is the, the ideas of hyper masculinity and hyper femininity that we must adhere to if you listen to uh, a lot of right-wing people which I personally don't <laughs> but um, I find it absolutely wonderful that not only is there a space for queerness in the classical community but there's a space for all different sides of the LGBT community we can definitely find a home within some of the things we see here and we can take comfort in the fact that the way we are isn't new or it isn't abnormal there have always been people like us and there always will be and society will always find a way to integrate people like us and our values and it's just this idea of modern society modern gender stereotypes that creates the idea that um, gender nonconformity or Dionysus's own nonconformity is abnormal which it mm. isn't yeah I think there are you know in other cultures and histories and civilizations you know plenty of examples to demonstrate that gender is not a binary concept it's interesting how you can use these characters as almost a learning opportunity for yourself especially as someone growing up with Griffith or studying it later in life you can find yourself connecting to these characters who present in certain ways and realizing oh it's because I feel that way too and you can kind of build yourself through these characters in that way yeah, that's a really important point, Charlie, I think, yeah, education is elevation, right? but, you know, it's so important to sort of be able to find your own space in, as you say, in these characters, in these stories and realise that, yeah, there is a space for you. Because, of course, I'm not a classicist, I'm a pizzazzist, I mean, I, despite what I'm saying, I mean, the, <laughs> the literature I read is slightly different, but it's raising all sorts of parallels. I think one of the beauties of, of works like the Iliad is also showing how identity whether that's gender sexuality social always evolves with these characters and it's contextual and and um, it's got me thinking of a, a a group or a sort of genre of poetry in arabic known as the diarat which is wine poetry where you get lots of gender nonconformity, same-sex unions and things but it's about that space and particular types times in your life and and it and that's true of the medieval period in terms of attitudes to sexuality it was often contingent on your social status your situation and it just really shows the plethora and it really texturizes and humanizes people in the past and i think we tend to think about identity as as fixed rather than evolving but we are constantly changing as individuals throughout our life we meet new people new experiences new places and we evolve with it and i think the beauty of ancient literature is it gives us examples of characters who are constantly changing and constantly responding and building new relationships with the people they meet sometimes as a sexual but sometimes they're not but it you're not they're not static and i think that's the danger of often with very traditional 19th century century models we see these people as fixed and just mm. unchanging and unresponsive. And I think it, I think it's really good in the last 20, 30 years, how we've seen them as, as humanized characters, even if they weren't necessarily real historical individuals. And that's the best advert for why people should, should read and study the classics, Dan, that was great. <laughs>
we before we close, um, Izzy and Charlie, do you have any last comments or things you'd like to to talk about on this topic? Closing remarks. The only thing I wanted to say is the same thing that I've been saying throughout this entire podcast. I feel that these these stories, these myths, these these items of literature take out of them whatever you would like to take out of them they don't have to be one specific thing you can interpret them however you please and that is what they are there for they are there to be interpreted and they are welcome to be interpreted and you should take out of classics exactly what you want to take out of it and one of the things that makes it so wonderful as a subject is it's a place where a lot of people can find a home and I really encourage anyone listening to this just to branch out, see what they can find, see if there's any part of classics that interests them to be able to use to better understand themselves. Absolutely, I agree completely. I think queerness and liminality have always been linked and there's a lot of liminality in most myths. So it doesn't have to be Greek or Latin, although that's mainly where we've studied or any particular pantheon, you can explore all of them and find someone who's like you in ways you hadn't expected. And even, it doesn't have to be entirely like you, it could be one tiny part of them where you're like, okay, this characteristic that I'm seeing in a character, that's incredible. And the staying power of these stories is really that. It's where you find these connections. And that's why I've always loved classics personally. Thank you, Charlie, it's a great, Great um, notes to end on. And thank you everyone for this discussion. It's been so informative, so interesting. This has been a fantastic discussion about queerness and classics. Um, and I really hope that people listening can, can take uh, something away from this and, and go and explore uh, the stories, cultures and ideas from the past uh, anew.